You ever think of, where did I even get my Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Today, we're going to explore that question. Welcome back, everybody. It is your host, Jordan Beechnaw of Crossing the Jordan. And today we're going to be exploring that question of where did the Bible come from? We're going to talk about today really the history of how the Bible was compiled. And uh, we're going to talk about a few different topics, but this is going to be the first part of a few series. So then we're going to talk about the next episode, actually diving into scripture um, and what that says about the church and tradition. And um, and then we're going to dive into uh, the papacy and the priesthood and authority, um, things of that nature. So this first episode of the series, we're going to talk about how the Bible came to be. And uh, so just an overview of what this episode is. It's going to be an overview of the Bible and the timing of it, the compilation of the New Testament, the church fathers. And if you guys recall, the church fathers are are those bishops or popes of the, the early centuries of the church dating back from Jesus and the apostles all the way through the 600s. And they they have a key uh, play within the on how we have the Bible and just the and what true the fullness of Christianity looks like in the in the early church because they knew Jesus and the apostles. Then we're going to talk about the deuterocanonical books. So, so these are the books that are in a Catholic Bible, but not found in Protestant Bibles. And then we're going to talk about um, the implications of the doctrine of sola scriptura or the Bible alone and reading the Bible apart from history and just the effects that that has. Uh, and then we're going to talk about how to properly read the Bible. So let's dive into the overview of the Bible and the timing of the Bible. So the word Bible comes from a Greek word, which literally means book. So the Bible, because it's composed of 73 total books, or 67 in the Protestant Bibles, um, it is a compilation of books. It's really a library of books. So these books are um, array of uh, different um, contexts and history settings and languages and genres, and we're going to talk about that later. So these 73 books, there is split up into uh, two testaments. So there's the Old Testament, which in the Catholic Bible, there's 46 of those Old Testament books. Then there's 27 New Testament books. And the word testament in, in both of those, Old Testament and New Testament, testament is, uh, it actually comes from a Latin word, testamentum, which, which literally means covenant. So the Old Testament books is actually really the Old Covenant books. The New Testament books are the new covenant books. So both of these books surrounded covenants. They were never uh, really made to be the covenants themselves. There was covenants that God made in the Old Testament. The old covenants were made with like uh, with Noah and Abraham. And then in the New Testament, the new covenant is Jesus, who only uses the term covenant when he is giving himself in the Eucharist and the Last Supper. And it's this total self-giving. And I'll talk about that when we talk about the Eucharist and the Mass. So um, so yeah, the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Testamentum, Covenant. And you hear a lot of us Christians will say the Word of God. So a lot of times we're referring to the written Word of God, so lowercase w, Word of God. But the fullness of God's revelation is the capital W word of God, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is the fullness of divine revelation and this complete fulfillment of the Old Testament is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So just let's we're gonna walk through just the history of the Old Testament really quick of the Jewish people. So the Old Testament, there's 40, 46 total books. 
and you can break these 46 total books into four sections. So first is uh, the first five books are the Pentateuch or the Torah, though that is like the Jewish law. So it's the law of Moses. Then there's the historical books, which uh, spans from the book of Joshua all the way to Maccabees, or if you're reading the Protestant Bible, all the way to Esther. And there's 16 of those, 16 books in the historical section. And then there's the wisdom books, uh, spanning from Job all the way to Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. And so there's seven books in the wisdom. And then there's the prophetic books. So it spans from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, and there's 18 total prophets in there. And the Old Testament itself covers nearly 3,000 years. So about from 3,000 or 2,500 BC all the way up until uh, the end of before Christ's time. So um, I'll walk you through really quick on just the outline of the Old Testament. So the book of Genesis, that is the creation in the early world. And then also in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Job, it talks about the patriarchs or um, uh, like Abraham and Isaac and Israel and their story. And that is the covenant with Abraham. And that's spanning between the years 2000 to 1700 BC. And then you have Exodus and Leviticus, which are the story of the Israelites being uh, held uh, in bondage or in slavery in Egypt, and then their exodus out, and that is the covenant with Moses, and that spans between this year 1700 to 1280 BC. And then you have Deuteronomy and Numbers, and that is talking about the 40 years of, uh, of the desert wanderings of the Israelites, and that spans from 1280 to 1240 BC. And then you have uh, Judges, Joshua, and Ruth, and that is talking about when the Israelites were ruled by judges. And that spans between 1240 to, to 1050 BC. And then you have uh, the royal Davidic kingdom era, which is by King David when he defeated Goliath and then his successor Solomon, uh, which is the son of David. And uh, those books are made up of 1 and 2 Samuel, part of First Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. And that spans between the years 1050 to 930 BC. And then you get into the divided kingdom. So like when the Israelite kingdom was split up, there was the southern tribe and the northern tribes. Um, and that is made up of one and two kings, one and two chronicles, Amos, Jonah, Hosea, uh, Isaiah, and Micah. And that is uh, between the time periods of 930 to 722 BC. And that is um, after this division. And so after this division, God sent a series of prophets. So you, you'll, you just heard me list off a few of those prophets. So after this divided kingdom, God sent a series of prophets to exhort his people to repentance and to return to the true God of Israel and, and move away from their idolatrous ways, which ultimately uh, these, these prophetic words or these prophets were either ignored or did not last. And then, um, and then you move into the Babylonian exile, which spanned between 722 to 538 BC, and that is uh, in the second book of Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Tobit, Joel, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Baruch, Daniel, Ezekiel, Judith, Lamentations, and Obadiah. And then you move into the return of Judah. Um, and that is spanning quite a few years between 538 to 167 BC. And that is made up of um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Esther, and Malachi. And then you move into the Maccabean Revolt. So that is spanning between 167 BC all the way up till 1 AD. And that is made up of 1 and 2 Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, and Sirach. 
And those were the final historical books of the Old Testament, which reveal how God's people were freed from captivity and returned to their promised land. But unfortunately, even after the return to God's, God's people suffered under the rule of foreign powers, such as the Greek and later the Roman empires. And then after, and they were awaiting a Messiah, a savior promised in scripture who would restore God's kingdom. And they were ultimately looking for more of like a militant and earthly king, not a crucified God that uh, is the fulfillment of Passover to bring us into the promised land where we dwell with God himself in heaven. And that is in Jesus. So that is the entire Old Testament walk through salvation history and the God of Revelation. And as you can tell, those books are not in chronological order. So um, you can do this, and a lot of people do, and I do it too. Um, but you don't necessarily like read the Bible like it's a novel, like you read it from beginning to end, like it's a chronological order. Like I just mentioned, there was a ton of books that overlap with a lot of timelines. And the Israelites, they spoke Hebrew. So much of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And then there became a point in 200 BC that there was a Greek translation, which is known as the Septuagint. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, And then there was actually a few books that were never originally written in Hebrew, but they were only written in Greek in the Septuagint. And then once we get to the Messianic fulfillment age between the years AD 1 and AD 33 when Jesus was um, here on earth, uh, Jesus, he was born to fulfill God's divine revelation to his people, to Israel, and for the entire world. And he was actually born in the most violent time of history. And Jesus was here in physical form here on earth, um, and he died on AD 33. So, and then just the timing of like when the New Testament was written. So there's the Gospels, the four Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we record the life of Jesus. And then there you have the book of Acts and then Paul, Paul's epistles. And then you have writing from James, uh, two from Peter, three from John, and then one from Jude. And then you have Revelation. And all of those books are spanning between like 55 AD all the way to about 100 AD. So a fair amount of time between when Jesus actually lived and when they were actually written. So here is just a quick overview of the history of the canon. So first off, canon comes from the Greek word, which means rule or standard. So it's literally the canon of the Bible, which means like the rule or standard. So how, like what books belong in the Bible, essentially. So here's a quick overview of just the timeline. So in 200 BC, the Greek Septuagint trans, uh, translated the Hebrew scriptures. And then 60, 55 to, or 60 to 100 AD, the New Testament books were written in Greek. And then in the year uh, 363, at the Council of Laodicea, there was the, that was the formation of biblical canon listing approved books of Old Testament and New Testament, which were both all in, which all of them were in Greek. And then in 382, there is the translation of the entire Bible into Latin by St. Jerome, who is the patron saint of biblical scholars, and he has that famous phrase of ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Um, and then in 1455, the Gutenberg Bible first published uh, the Bible with movable type. And then 1545, at the Council of Trent, the Latin Vulgate confirmed as only authorized translation of the Bible. And then if you back up just a little bit into the 14th century, that was when the Catholic Church actually put numbers in the Bible. So the way when we open the Bible right now, you're going to see, I, I, I'm, we're going to reference all of these chapters and verses. There was none of that in the Old Testament or New Testament. There was no uh, point, like they were just scrolls, right? So they were just these long written letters. 
Um, and then in uh, 1610, uh, that was the first official English translation of the Latin Vulgate. And then, um, and then just to give you a history of uh, a few councils where they talked about the in the early church, they talked about the canon and what the early church should be using. That was by Pope uh, Damasus, and the he's the he's the 37th Pope. Okay, so we're talking about in the year 382. He is the 37th Pope. And we have 37 Popes all the way until we even get what we know as today as the Bible. So it spanned four centuries before we even had, as Christians, a confirmed Bible that everybody was going to use. So the first, we had all the way from Peter, all the way to Pope Damasus, okay? So until we had the the Bible. And um, so Pope Damasus in 382, he first promulgated the canon at the Synod in Rome, and then it was later defined at the regional councils of Hippo in 393, and then again in Carthage in 397. And then during the Protestant Revolution, uh, in the 1500s, the church had again, they reaffirmed the canon again at the Ecumenical Council of Trent um, after the Protestant revolutionists or the people of the Protestant Reformation challenged its inclusion of certain books, including what we call the deuterocanonical books. And I'll talk about that term in a little bit when we talk about the deuterocanonical books, which are referred to as the Apocrypha by our Protestant brothers and sisters. So just uh, since I talked about so much timeline, um, I want to discuss really quick if the Bible was ever corrupted. So is there stuff in there that's not true or was ever corrupted when the, all these copies were being made? And I talked about this quite a bit when I'm talking about uh, Jesus in my last official episode, but just a really quick recap. So there are currently there currently exist over 5,500 copies of New Testament manuscripts written in Greek, as well as 15,000 to 25,000 manuscripts written in other languages, including Latin, Coptic, Coptic and Syriac. 50 of the Greek manuscripts can be dated to be within 250 years of the original copies. And the first complete copy of the New Testament is called the Codex uh, Sinaiticus. I don't even know how to pronounce that, but and that was discovered in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that can be dated to within 300 years of the original documents, which is actually the closest uh, antiquities that we have that date back to the original events more than almost any other event that happened in history. So the next closest would be the poem of Hom- the Homer's poem called the Iliad. That was written 18, 1800 years later. And that was that's always accepted to be true. So, and then also just the wide variety of all these copies, they almost all line up exactly. And then just like the um, biblical scholar F.F. Bruce, he said, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. So uh, all the copies that happen, they actually almost go directly back to when they were originally written, and they um, just the amount of copies that they have, there was no one time that somebody could have corrupted it. And because of the wealth of copies that they have, they can compare each one and make sure it all lines up, which it does. And then I've and I've shared quotes from people that are, were agnostic or atheist or very very uh, skeptical um, historians or archaeologists, and they all confirm that the historians of the first rank actually wrote the New Testament uh, letters. So let's talk about the compilation of the New Testament. So 
Um, and if you caught this at the beginning, like when I was talking about the time that, that the Bible was written and when Jesus lived, the earliest Christians didn't even have a Bible. So that time between uh, 33 AD when Jesus died and until at least the 55 or 60 AD and all the way through the 100 AD, a lot of those letters didn't even exist. So there was no Bible for the early Christians. All they had was the church and the apostles authoritatively teaching, which that authority was given to them by Jesus himself. So, um, and also, so when that the scriptures did come around, the early Christians between uh, the years 33 AD and all the way through until the late of the end of the fourth century, um, early Christians, they heard many interpretations of scripture and they couldn't all be correct, right? So like one teaching had to be the correct one. And that is where sacred tradition comes in, which provided the way to discern the correct understanding. So the early Christians knew they could trust Peter's teaching because he was one of Jesus's apostles, those who Jesus first appointed with authority to teach. They recognized that the apostles were sent by Christ endowed with, the spe- with special authority to teach in his name and to minister the sacraments. So the scriptures are right when they talk about, and we'll talk about this in the next episode, when they talk about unwritten tradition, because one of the things that was handed on in unwritten form was the proper list of inspired biblical books themselves. The word Bible is not in the Bible. There is no uh, table of contents within the Bible. That had to be figured out. So that's what we're going to talk about. And just really quick, the term tradition literally means handed down. And we're going to later talk about how all of us have our own traditions, whether it's just like how I get around in the morning to what goes on at work to what happened in uh, sports or schools or family traditions, and also all the way down to every single church has their own tradition. So just a quick distinguish uh, between tradition and sacred tradition. Sacred tradition, what the church uh, holds as sacred tradition, is the teaching or the uh practice of the Christians that were handed down from Jesus directly to the apostles. So things that cannot change at all. Sacred tradition. And then there's that small t tradition or disciplines that developed over time. And we'll talk about that in the next episode as well. So let's talk about the timing of when all of this happened. So like we just talked about, the um, the New Testament letters were written decades after Jesus. So times there were times with uh, no letters at all in the early church. So the first Christians, they didn't learn their faith from the Bible because the Bible didn't exist. There were three decades between the crucifixion of Jesus and the writings of the first epistles of the New Testament. And then there were nearly five more decades before the last New Testament book was written. So many Christians believed in Jesus and even died for his sake without ever encountering the words of St. Paul for the simple reason that Paul had not written anything yet. And just additionally, too, um, in the New Testament, you see uh, that there's no instructions on how to create a church, make a church, build a church. It already has established communities of the Catholic Church and all of these different communities. St. Paul is talking about the same faith in every single community that he's talking about. And he's in communion with all the other writers of the New Testament, like Peter, John, James, Jude. They're all of they're all bishops and Peter obviously being the first pope, and we'll talk about that some other time too. Um, and so there's no inspired table of contents in the Bible. The, the, the word Bible isn't in the Bible, and there's no inspired table of contents that, had all, that all had to be figured out by the church. 
and um, Saint Stephen, the first martyr uh, in, in the New Testament, and others were so well grounded in the faith, handed on through sacred tradition, that they were willing to suffer and die for it. So sacred tradition came long before a word of the New Testament was ever written, including even the names of the gospel authors. Those were not in the original manuscripts. So in the early church, there was no uh, Mark wrote this and Matthew wrote that. And actually that wasn't figured out until the second century is passed on down through tradition because people knew the apostles so they could they had this this tradition so in the second century the church father of papias he says mark being the recorder of peter wrote accurately but not in order whatever peter remembered of the things either said or done by the lord matthew composed the sayings in hebrew style but each recorded them as he was able and then um, for nearly after, after writing, all these different writings happened, there were nearly two and a half centuries that there was no authoritatively canon, no, no authoritative canon of scripture. And so Christians during that time did not have a complete and authoritative Bible, but they did have a living and authoritative tradition handed on by the apostles. And then the Bible is a testament, uh, and we'll talk up, and we'll see this in the next episode. But the Bible is a testament to the oral tradition that was alive and already at work from the beginning of the church. Sacred Scripture is itself a product of the sacred tradition of the church, and that's where we're going to talk about how the Bible came to be what it is and how we have it today. So there were three main points or three main qualities that the early church in that fourth century time period to decide which books belonged in the New Testament. These three things, apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy. So the church fathers who established the canon rejected any text that contained doctrines contrary to the traditions that the apostles had handed down to them. So we can do the same thing today to see if our interpretation is correct, to go look at sacred tradition um, and see what the correct teaching is to, te to see whose interpretation is correct which one is compatible with sacred tradition because that is exactly how the bible was compiled which one was 100% they the person either knew jesus or the apostles is written within that first century and it was um, and it was in line with the tradition that was handed on to them by the apostles because at that time there were a ton of ton of texts that were being used in the early church expanded from all these different texts so um, such as the Gnostic Gospel, so the Gospel of Thomas. That was to Marcion's uh, edited version of Luke's Gospel and uh, Paul's epistles. There were a lot of heretical writings proposed by different groups for inclusion in the New Testament, but the church determined that they contradicted the tradition handed down to them from the apostles, and so must have been forged or otherwise not inspired writings. So they drew from the list from oral tradition and from the practice and customs of Christian worship, which preserved the tradition handed down from the apostles concerning which books were canonical and which weren't. And as we discussed before, the table of contents of the written scriptures actually come from unwritten tradition. So therefore, you can't attack the value of unwritten tradition without finally undermining scripture itself. Because the word of God was transmitted orally from Jesus to the apostles and disciples through sacred tradition. And as I was mentioning earlier, all these different writings that the early church had in their masses and what people were reading 
um, for the first four centuries included seven different letters from uh, St. Ignatius. And then there's this letter of Clement to the Corinthians, and, and Clement is the fourth pope within the first century of the church. And he's even mentioned in Philippians 4.3. There was the Didache, which means the teaching of the Twelve, and I'll hit on that in just a second. And then the shepherd. All of these were revered by many Christians as inspired, but were later excluded from the canon of Scripture. And that was those were huge debates because those were apostles that knew Jesus and the original apostles. They were written in the first century. They were in line with tradition, but the, ultimately the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, led the church to, to decide that they were not to be included in the canon of Scripture. And it was not until the Senate of Rome and the subsequent councils of Hippo and Carthage that the Catholic Church defined which books made it into the New Testament and which didn't. So the early fathers, as we can see, appealed to tradition to differentiate true Christianity from that of the heretics. So it's not obvious what was to be included in Scripture from all of those letters of the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. So Ecclesiastes contains what seems to be a cynical rejection of the afterlife, Within, the, within that book, and that is a book that's, that the Protestants uh, accept. The third letter of John in the New Testament doesn't even mention the name of Jesus, and the letter to Philemon from St. Paul doesn't even teach any specific doctrine. So the part of the book, uh, and there's the part of the book of Esther and the Song of Songs that Protestants consider to be inspired scripture that never even mention the name of God. They don't even talk about God. And so all of these writings are found in the Bible, although other writings that were popular in the early church, such as the, the letters that we were just talking about, like the letters of Ignatius, Clement, uh, the Didache, and the Shepherd, were all revered by many Christians as inspired, but were later excluded from the canon of Scripture. And actually, I have uh, quite a few of these writings from the early church fathers and uh, writings that the early church used during their masses and what they read, these books around the covenant of the Eucharist, so what they actually read during Mass. Um, and one of those is the Didache. And the Didache means the teaching of the Twelve. And some date it all the way as early as the 30s, so way before any of the New Testament writings, whether the Gospels or the Epistles. And that actually talks, that talks about the basic Christian religion. And you can find this on Amazon. Go look it up. Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And so they talk about the basic Christian religion, such as the sacraments, such as the Eucharist, baptism, confession. And uh, when it talks about baptism, and this is something that is so disputed because the Bible doesn't um, lay out uh, how we're supposed to baptize people. Is that going to be an immersion? So we didn't need to find uh, water or a lake or anything like that? Or can we just sprinkle it on them? So the Bible doesn't talk about that. But sacred tradition, all the way back to the apostles themselves, to the original 12 apostles, this is how they were baptizing. It says in the Didache that when it's talking about bapt baptism, they, they prefer immersion or running water. And if you can't find either of those, then sprinkle on their head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that is an apostolic tradition that is not discussed in the Bible. So the Bible, it was developed in a process that wasn't completed until the end of the fourth century. However, from the very beginning, the members of the early church believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, and they viewed the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, and they believed in the important role of baptism uh, plays in the normal salvation process, and they also believed in the authority of bishops and priests, especially the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and uh, they looked at him as the supreme authority by all the churches spread across the entire known world. 
because just as just as um, the America's founding fathers created the Supreme Court to interpret the U.S. Constitution, Jesus similarly gave his church the uh, power and the authority to interpret Scripture, and an or- and actually even out of the church that he founded, uh, even compiled Scripture as we know it. So, uh, if, with that analogy, the Supreme Court. Um, through the, their court's decision, a uniform legal code that bound all citizens equally would be ensured. It's even more so for Jesus's church because it is divinely uh, instituted and divinely protected from error. So, and that is the church's magisterium. The magisterium are all the bishops in union with the Pope. On uh, they have this power to bind and to loose, as Jesus says. And we'll talk about the Scripture and the papacy and the authority of the church and and how the Bible clearly talks about that. Um, so now let's dive into sola scriptura and what the traditions of in the early church and what the church fathers say so again the church fathers are all the way from the 12 apostles through the 600s uh, a.d so they are crucial because they connect the teachings of jesus and apostles down through uh, all the centuries including the time of the compilation of scripture so the second century saint irenaeus he says this in opposition to heresies the church having received this preaching in the faith although she is disseminated throughout the the whole world yet guarded it as if she occupied but one house she likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart and harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed by one mouth for while the languages of the world are diverse nevertheless the authority of the tradition is one and the same also and he also wrote it is possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth to contemplate the tradition of the apostles which has been made known throughout the whole world and then in saint vincent of lorraine's he made this point in the fifth century when he noticed that heretics heretics are those that separate themselves from the true christian teaching could cite script and he he this is what he said about the them when he noticed that these heretics could cite scripture just as well as the faithful he says, It is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various error that the rule of the right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of the ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. In 225, uh, Origen, he says this, The teachings of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed as the truth which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. The 4th century church historian Eusebius, he says this, Papias, who is he talking about in AD 120, who is now mentioned by us, affirms that he received the sayings of the apostles from those who accompanied them, and he, moreover, asserts that he heard in person Artistion and the presbyter John. Accordingly, he mentions them frequently by name, and in his writings gives their traditions concerning Jesus. There are other passages of his in which he relates some miraculous deeds, stating that he acquired the knowledge of them from tradition. At that time, A.D. 150, there flourished in the church Hagisippus, whom we know from what has gone before, and Dionysus, bishop of Corinth, and another bishop, Pinetus of Crete, and besides these, Philip and 
Apollinarius and Melito and Musanus and Modestus and finally Irenaeus. From them has come down to us in writing the sound and orthodox faith received from tradition. And then uh, near the uh, year 400, St. Augustine, I've talked about him before, he's my homie. He says this, There are many things which are observed by the whole church and therefore are fairly held to have been adjoined by the apostles which yet are not mentioned in their writings. He went on to call apostolic tradition the fountain that Christians should go back to for truth in matters of the Christian faith. And then Basil the Great, he wrote this in 375. Of the dogmas and messages preserved in the church, some we possess from written teaching and others we receive from the tradition of the apostles handed on to us in mystery. In respect to piety, both are the same force. No one will contradict any of these, no one at any rate, who is even moderately versed in matters ecclesiastical. Indeed, were we to try to reject unwritten customers as having no great authority, we would unwittingly injure the gospel and its vitals, or rather, we would reduce the message to a mere term. And then that same year, uh, Epiphanius of Salamis, he writes this, it is needful also to make use of tradition, for not everything can be gotten from sacred scripture. The holy apostles handed down some things in the scriptures, other things in tradition. And uh, when we get into scripture, you're going to see quite a few things that are referencing uh, oral tradition. And then just this last quote from uh, Cyprian of Carthage, he, who wrote this in 253 about a false teacher of his day. He says this, Novation is not in the church, nor can he be reckoned as a bishop, who succeeding to no one and despising the evangelical and apostolic tradition sprang from himself. So all of this goes to show us that tradition was essential and still is essential to hold on to the true Christian faith and instituted by Jesus himself and passed on from the apostles to their successors all the way to today. And that was even crucial in the times of when the um, scripture was being written. Well, when we dive into scripture, there's going to be a ton of these, but like Saint, uh, in the second letter of Peter, he warns people that would use scripture to distort the truth to their own destruction and to beware of people that had a different gospel preaching than what St. Peter, St. Paul, and all the apostles of the early church instituted by Jesus were. And we saw just now how the when we have the Bible as we know it, what everyone believes to be the inspired word of God, how the early church used tradition in order to make sure that the Bible was in line with the tradition handed on from the apostles and, and divinely instituted by Jesus himself in the church. So, and that is not to say, though, that the tradition is over the Bible. And actually, the church doesn't say that. They're both like one and the same. They both um, are inseparable from each other. They're both uh, from divine revelation handed down. So you need both. You cannot have scripture without tradition and you can't have tradition without scripture. They both are inseparable from each other and you need them. And they also cannot contradict each other because both of them are the are truth from God, right? But scripture alone is not enough because scripture itself points to a church that was authoritatively instituted by Jesus and to succeed. And a lot of, uh, there's a few Christian denominations that claim that, okay, the apostles, the 12 apostles, they definitely had authority, but until scripture came about, there is no more need for authority. 
Well, first off, in Scripture itself, you see this, um, you see all like four generations of the handing on of tradition from the from St. Paul to Timothy and then Timothy to his successor and then from his successor into the next one. So you see already four generations and then you don't see the Bible being compiled until the end of the fourth century. Like I said earlier, that was the 37th Pope of the church. So you have all of this time and you need this authority in order to establish this Bible already. And then after that, you have to have this authority to hold on to the tradition that was true because a lot of people, once they had the Bible, would interpret it themselves. And then they would have a false distortion, even about Jesus' nature, whether if he was even God, the Trinity, the Trinity was a doctrine not even taught um, formally in the church until 325, yet that was something divinely revealed and always true and always believed from day one on the church. So it just goes to show you that you need tradition, and we'll talk about more of that later. But now I want to dive into the Deuterocanonical books. So the Deuterocanonical books include the books of Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Baruch, and as well as small portions of Esther and Daniel, and are found in the Catholic Old Testament Bible. Um, and this reflects the canon of the Septuagint. The Septuagint um, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew Masoretic text doesn't contain these books. Um, Catholics refer to them as Deuterocanonical, uh, and Protestants refer to them as Apocrypha. And just for uh, quick clarity for all my Catholic brothers and sisters, be, just because they're called the doodle canonical books, they're not to separate them from the rest of the Old Testament. They are just as inspired and just as inerrant, which means not an error, as the rest of the uh, Old Testament text. The only time that they were called doodle canonical was after the Protestant Revolution when Martin Luther wanted to take them out. So... Um, so yeah, they're still inerrant in the inspired word of God. So let's talk about why that is true. So the Jews of the Old Testament, there were really three different canons of the Old Testament from Jews. There were the Sadducees, who only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which is the Law of Moses or the Torah. There were other Jews uh, who has basically what the Protestant Bibles have today, which is what we already refer to as the Hebrew Mesoretic text. And then there were other Jews that had the entire Septuagint, which was the Greek translation in 200 BC, which reflects what Catholics have in their Old Testament Bible. So, which one did Jesus use? Well, Jesus and the apostles used the Septuagint, which is what the Catholics have today. In the New Testament uh, scriptures, there's 300 Old Testament references. 250 of them are from the Septuagint, which Jesus read and the apostles used, and clearly the, the writers of the New Testament used. Um, and Jews today, there's still they still use the Septuagint. So Ethiopian Jews and other uh, others from Africa, they use the Deuterocanonicals to this day. And the Septuagint, that entire Old Testament, what the Catholics have in their Bible today, was widely used in the early church. So, and Greek was like the universal language. It's basically like English today. So that Greek translation was used universally through uh, the early church. 
And also, uh, when the Protestant Reformation came up, a lot of people pointed to the Council of Jamnia, uh, or Jamnia, that happened in AD 70, which was a council of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people got together in AD 70, and they rejected these deuterocanonical books to be inspired. So they point to the Jews don't, uh, they even say that it's not inspired. But guess what they also did at AD 70? They rejected the entire New Testament, and they rejected Jesus. So if we're going to follow that, then we should get rid of the entire New Testament and whatever else that the Jews say, and then just we shouldn't believe in Jesus either, because if we're going to go off the Council of Gemnia, then let's just get rid of it all. So, um, and actually the Jewish people, they wanted to depart from the Deuterocanonical books because they because the books were so popular among the early Christians that they basically saw these Christians as apostate Jews, meaning that they turned their back on the Jewish religion. So the people that denied Jesus, they wanted to get rid of these deuterocanonical books because the Christians were using them. They wanted to separate the Christian tradition from the Jewish tradition and because it was so uh, used in the early church. But also, every single time of where the canon of scripture was settled, like I mentioned earlier, all the way like in the 300s and 400s and all the way through church history, all the way up until the Protestant Reformation, Every single council, when they came up with the list of inspired scripture, it always included the deuterocanonical books. Every single time. There wasn't a single time that, they, that the church rejected those deuterocanonical books. So as we see, the first Christians had no problems with accepting those deuterocanonical books. They weren't even separated, first off. They were just considered within the canon. So they had no problems with those in their Bible, and that is evidence in the church fathers, such as Clement of Rome in the first century, Irenaeus, Athenagoras, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Methodius, Cyprian, Athanasius, and Augustine. Those were church fathers spanning from the first century all the way through the fourth and fifth century. And they all cited the deuterocanonical books. And there's actually an, an Anglican scholar, so not Catholic, an Anglican scholar who wrote, for the great majority of the early church fathers, the deuterocanonical writings ranked as scripture in the fullest sense. So now I want to talk about um, why this even came up. So I'm going to briefly talk about the Reformation, and this is not, maybe I'll talk about like details of what actually happened, what went on during the Reformation in the 1500s, but this is just sticking to um, really the challenge of the deuterocanonical books. So the Reformation. So Luther, he also, like he wanted to rip out all of these books of the Old Testament, the books that we were just talking about that we call the deuterocanonical, the Protestants call the Apocrypha. And so he wanted to take those out because they didn't align with his theological beliefs. And he also wanted to take out New Testament books. Luther called the letter of James an epistle of straw because it contradicted, it contradicted his theology of justification by faith alone. James 2.24 says that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we'll talk about salvation in another episode and how we reconcile that with the rest of the entire Bible. But that is the only place where faith alone is ever used and is directly condemned. And Martin Luther didn't like that, so he wanted to take out that entire letter from James. And then not only that, but in his uh, translation of the Bible into his language of, of German, he also added in Romans 3.28, the, he added in the word alone to make it seem like Scripture, St. Paul said that a man is justified alone through faith. 
Um, and then he also he wanted to exclude from his Bible uh, the books of the book of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. So the Reforma- the Reformation clearly demonstrated the fallacy of believing that the Holy Spirit will enlighten each individual Christian as to the extent of the canon, because after that there were also other reformers who wanted to take out other pieces. So it was in this period that the canon received its first challenge in over a thousand years. And when uh, Martin Luther, he challenged the the canon who wanted to also remove the New Testament books, it led to the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563, which affirmed the full canon of scripture for a second time, giving rise to the use of the term deuterocanonical, as we mentioned before. And so most of the reformers followed Luther in removing revelation from the canon. So the book of Revelation that we all have in our Bible. There was Protestant uh, reformers that took that out. Um, and then another good example of this is the Swiss reformer uh, Ulrich Zwingli. He said, the Council of Trent in 1556 infallibly declared the extent of the canon in response to the reformers. Some of the descendants of the reformers removed Song of Songs, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Luke, and Acts, while others added 1 Clement and 3 Corinthians. Most of the reformers, however, were unanimous in their rejection of the inspiration of the Deuterocanonicals. So you had, as soon as Martin Luther pulled stuff out of the Bible, guess what everybody else did? Well, why do I have to listen to you then? You're saying that I don't need a church, so why would I even listen to you, Martin Luther? So I'm going to go back and I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to figure out which books are truly inspired, which we also know in the early church, there were people that wanted to remove the entire Old Testament, which would have had a disastrous effect on our knowledge of Jesus and what he actually fulfilled. And a lot of the New Testament would even make sense without it. But as you can see, as soon as you take yourself from the church or say that it's the Bible alone, well, one, where did you get the Bible? This is the thing that came up even during the Reformation and all these other people were pulling things out. And then Martin Luther would get mad when people would reject his interpretation of scripture. Well, where does it end then, right? So if Martin Luther is saying that scripture alone is self-interpretive, but then another person in his in the Reformation saw, they were like, well, I don't believe that Martin Luther. They just start going and it just keeps growing and growing and growing all the way through today where we have over 45,000 denominations all saying that they follow the Bible. So you'd really have to ask yourself, am I following the Bible? Who has the authority? Is So the Bible is inerrant, but is our interpretation inerrant? So this is where we see the importance of sacred tradition holding to what Jesus actually taught to his apostles and handed down through the successors of Peter and the apostles. So um, in the Apocrypha and Protestant Bibles, they actually, so the Apocrypha and Protestant Bibles, which we call the Judo Canonicals and the Catholic Bible, it was so crazy to take those out that even protestants felt like they had to leave them in the bibles and that's why they left them as an appendix because they felt like they couldn't take them out because people were so used to them being in there and it would have caused a ton of problems so they still found a way to keep it in their bibles but say really they're not inspired though but just keep them there because guess what is really for over a thousand years they were all considered uh, inspired word of God. So even the um, people that were a part of the Reformation, they saw this problem of taking them out. 
So, um, so this whole point of the Reformation, this sola scriptura, it's one of two pillars of the Protestant Reformation. The other one was uh, is faith alone, which we'll talk about in another episode about salvation. And I kind of already hit on what Martin Luther's idea was. But um, that the, so this doctrine of sola scriptura states that nothing can be taken away from God's word. Well, what we just talked about, history really just goes to show that Martin Luther and other Protestants have violated their own doctrine by removing books and Martin Luther adding his own words that we are saved by faith alone in his German translation. And just so one last argument are uh, this idea that the New Testament never references the deuterocanonical books. So if you're going off of that type of argument, then you can also say, um, that the books of Joshua, Judges, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Nahum, none of those belong in sacred scripture because the New Testament never quotes them and never quotes any of those books that I just mentioned. And the New Testament never even alludes to Esther, Ecclesiastes, or the Song of Solomon. So those books that every single Bible has, whether Protestant or Catholic, would have to be removed if you're going to go off of uh, direct quotations from the New Test- from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And just to show you too, these deuterocanonical books are actually referenced and alluded to in the New Testament. So in Matthew 27, 39-43, this is where the crowd and the Jewish leaders are taunting Jesus because Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God, yet God didn't save him from being crucified. This passage is clearly referring back to the Deuterocanonical Book of Wisdom, which says, If the righteous man is God's son, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. That is Wisdom chapter 2, verse 18. And then, uh, and then the Deuterocanonical books are also referenced in Mark 12, 18 through 22, where the Sadducees question Jesus about the resurrection. So they're asking about this woman who was married to seven brothers who all died consecutively. And they're asking who, uh, when she dies at the time of the resurrection, whose wife will she be? That story is from Tobit. And Jesus doesn't dismiss them as apocryphal. He rolls with it. And just like we mentioned earlier, out of the 300 uh, Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, 250 of them are in the Septuagint, which Jesus and the apostles used. And then uh, Hebrews 11.35, it says, received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. So this refers to the persecutions found in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, where a group of brothers suffer martyrdom instead of violating God's law. Their mother said, do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again with your brothers. That is 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 29. And then lastly, the Jewish people, they weren't even sola scriptura. The feast of Hanukkah that we all know about, that actually comes from the book of Maccabees, which is in the deuterocanonical books, which is in the Apocrypha of the Protestant Bible. So in short, and just a summary of all this uh, deuterocanonical discussion, it only was ever challenged uh, at the Protestant Re- Reformation based on per, uh, individuals' interpretation and it, the scripture didn't fit um, their theological ideas. So they wanted to take out all this scripture. And um, so that it included these deuterocanonical books. It also included books of the New Testament they wanted to reject. And the word of God that is inerrant, not an error, 
all of a sudden is being ripped apart by all this division because as soon as one person says that their interpretation is better than the church's, well, then what is to say that everybody else, they should just figure it out too. And then also these deuterocanonical books, they were used by Jesus and the apostles and all of the early church. And they were also used by the New Testament authors themselves. Again, out of 300 references to the Old Testament and the New Testament, 250 of them are from the Septuagint, which include these deuterocanonical books. So now let's dive into just the implications of this doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. As we have seen from all this discussion is that the Bible alone causes division because it places our interpretation above everyone else's and it causes heresies and schisms and uh, essentially what we kind of have today in the body of Christ, all of this division saying that I am uh, reading the Bible in the correct way. So we're placing ourselves as our own Pope. <laughs> we are we're placing ourselves as our own interpreter, our um, our own interpretation is uh, we're saying that it's better than everyone else's and we're following the bible everyone is following the bible today so who is right well i would say that the church that jesus founded is uh actually living out the bible of christianity so and we'll talk about that in the next episode but and even uh heresies that have happened in the past even about jesus's nature they all came from scripture (laughs) It came from someone's interpretation of scripture. So like the Aaron heresy, which was a huge, probably the the biggest heresy, and it's actually kind of revitalized into this quasi-Christianity of like Jehovah Witnesses that say Jesus was not God. They get that from scripture. The Aaron heresy was in the third and fourth century, and they pointed to scripture to say that Jesus was a created being and therefore not God. He was not divine. He was not, he's not part of the Godhead. There is no Trinity. All of that came from scripture. They were placing their interpretation of scripture over the church and what the apostles knew through tradition that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so scripture alone causes heresies and schisms. So when you argue your points of the Bible, you're placing your own interpretation as the authority. So whose authority is correct? And the only way to be sure the Bible is the Bible is if the Catholic Church is correct. So if one person rejects the authority of the Catholic Church, then it is up to that individual Christian to decide by relying on the Holy Spirit which books belong in the Bible, if any belong in the Bible, and not rely on the traditions of men like Martin Luther did. So Martin Luther, his tradition is a tradition that is man-made which differs from the sacred tradition of the Catholic Church, which was from Jesus himself to the apostles. That is a huge distinguishment, right? So a lot of people, they knock Catholics for following too much tradition. But as we can see, and we're going to show that actually the Catholic Church has sacred tradition, and we do have small t traditions, but it's the only church that actually distinguishes that, and it has sacred tradition, capital T tradition, in order to keep alive the true Christian faith handed down from Jesus to the apostles. And so if you were to rely on the traditions of men like Martin Luther, history has shown that this method produces a schizophrenic Christianity. I'm, I'm quoting a, an article when I just said schizophrenic Christianity, but as you can see, it, it does turn into that. So, and so this just, I just want to stop and say this really quick too. So the Bible isn't causing division. 
it's actually calling us to unity. It points to a church, an authoritative church. And Jesus says in John 17 that his church may be one as him and the Father are one so that the world may believe. That is a powerful unity. He establishes a visible church. So, and I'll talk about this in the next episode when we talk about scripture. But so, but we, where we divide ourselves is because we think our interpretation and, our, and we force our experience and desires onto scripture instead of allowing scripture to say what it says and determine our experience. So we put ourselves on top of interpreting scripture and therefore it causes all these divisions. So now we tend, because of that, we tend to fall into factionalism, which Paul, St. Paul, he addresses this problem, noting that Christians in Corinth say that I belong to Paul, or I, bo- I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas or Cephas, or I belong to Jesus Christ, and that's 1 Corinthians one twelve. This is just like saying, I belong to Luther, I belong to Calvin, I belong to the Pope, or the non-denominational, or claims I, I just belong to Jesus. We tend to pit ourselves against one another rather than seeing ourselves as servants of our follow, fellow Christians and disciples of the one Lord. And so I just wanted to share a very common story of Protestant pastors that run into problems um, in their ministry and they eventually convert to the Catholic Church. And this is so many of them. And these are doctorates, huge biblical theologians, and were big Protestant pastors, and they converted to the Catholic Church, and a lot of their stories sounded just like this. This is one of many Protestant pastors' conversion stories. So this is Dr. John uh, Bergsma. He came from the, Cal- uh, the Calvin tradition of, the ca- of uh, Christianity. And so th- let me just walk you through what he says about his walk to the Catholic Church based on Sola Scriptura. So he was saying that it was it was really ironic that in order to be a pastor in his uh, Calvin Calvinistic de- denomination, that he had to formally commit himself not only to the Bible but also to three historic doctrinal statements from various synods of Calvinistic uh, Calvinist churches from the early period of the Reformation. So ironically, these the church doctrinal statements taught that Scripture alone was all that was necessary, apart from statements by the church. Yet alone, but the church actually had statements that he had to go by in order to be a pastor of his church. So he says theoretically, the entire church could have misunderstood a certain Scripture for two thousand years until some individual Christian came along and understood it properly for the first time. One could never be certain that Christians had properly understood scripture. Therefore, any and every doctrine could potentially be called into question and nothing was ever really settled. So every Christian, moreover, was potentially their own pope and could decide for themselves what scripture meant. This kind of thinking leads to the dissolving of the church down to each individual Christian with his own Bible. That has happened. For example, it is said of Roger Williams, the renegade Protestant pastor who founded the state of Rhode Island, that at the end of his life, he would celebrate the Lord's Supper by himself because he wasn't confident that even his wife held to the correct doctrine. It, is, it isolates each one of us on our own ultimate inter, as our own ultimate interpreter of God's word. So denominations, they're like-minded groups of people. The denomination that he belonged to had bonded together around three doctrinal statements from Calvinist synods from the early Reformation period, plus a number of other uh, informal statements and commitments, such as the support of independent Christian day schools and the rejection of membership in the Masons or other secret societies. 
and his denomination held a synod every single year, and the synod had complete power and principle to change any aspect of the church law or doctrine. As a result, the church government manual had to be updated annually. Potentially, anything and everything could be changed every year. In practice, only currently trending issues were on the table of for potential change. So year after year, the synod would slowly adapt the teaching of our ch- the church to be more in line with American culture. So this was easy to observe and very frustrating, he said, for those who believed that truth was truth and didn't need to be revised on an annual basis. And you see this a ton when it comes to moral issues. For a quick example, just like uh, contraception, in the 1930s, every single Christian church thought that it was a absolute no and it was wrong. Now guess what the only church is that says that it's wrong? The Catholic Church. And we'll talk about that in another episode, but that's just like a, a just a just showing you what he is talking about here. Every single year, this church is trying to change the world, but truth is truth, and it doesn't need to be revised on an annual basis. So now, so now, when he was going through this as a Protestant pastor, he says this, I lost faith in the Bible alone, but found great faith in the Word of God. So all Christians were part of some tradition, whether they recognized it or not. They were a Baptist tradition, a Lutheran tradition, a Catholic tradition, an Eastern Orthodox tradition, and a Reformed tradition. And he began to realize how impossible it was to maintain unity among Christians if all they had, if all we had to go on was the Bible alone, such as baptism. Those various traditions disagree on the nature of baptism and on infant baptisms. They also all uh, defer on sexual morality, marriage, and divorce. But that cannot be the same Jesus who prayed, "May all be one, even as I and the Father are one." That could not have he could not have intended for forty thousand or more different denominations with different teachings on salvation. Jesus couldn't have intended that some Christians run around telling people they must speak in tongues while others say they must not, others claiming we must baptize our children while others claim we must not, some claiming divorce and remarriage are okay while others say they are not. That is a quote from Dr. John. And then he also says, um, he's actually debating with this revered theologian, this Protestant pastor that he really liked, but this Protestant pastor left his church and then everyone was debating him, all these other Protestant pastors trying to get him to come back to their church. And so this guy basically had like an open forum, basically with people asking him all these, all these questions about why he's leaving. And uh, Dr. John got so frustrated. This is while he was still a Calvin. He like stands up and he was like, you have set yourself up as your own arbiter of the truth. And so the the theologian, he literally just looked up at him and was like, well, yes, that is the Protestant principle, isn't it? So then Dr. John, he started seeing that tradition uh, was crucial and that tradition could arbitrate between competing interpretations of scripture. And then Dr. John, he uh, says like after he became Catholic, he was talking with other Protestants and each of them had their arguments, but he says that mine were in keeping with what Christians had always believed, whereas his were novel, they were just recent inventions. So just like Dr. John and many people that come to the Catholic faith is because they end up seeing that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus and every other church was founded by man. The Catholic Church has sacred tradition that was divinely instituted, whereas other churches have man-made traditions. And there comes a point where they see that Catholics actually take the Bible even more seriously and for actually what it says, where uh, Protestants, they have to use a lot of pretexts that are out of context, which make it a proof text, and to work around a lot of scriptures. 
So just like John 6, where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and then he, at the Last Supper, says, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, you have to work around that in order to say that he's not meaning literal. So you have to do these like acrobatics in order to make an argument that he doesn't mean what he says. And even though the Catholic Church and the earliest Christians, you even see in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, the earliest Christians believed that the Mass and the Eucharist was truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So... As you can see, history matters. When we isolate the Bible apart from history and not understanding the early Christians and how they understood Jesus and the apostles' teachings, we get into a ton of trouble, and that's why there is a new church uh, almost every single week. The United States is basically averaging a new church every single week, and some people are even just picking up the Bible and saying that their church is right in their home by themselves. So, And that's what happens when you read the Bible isolated from history. So once you actually read the scriptures in the context which they were written and the timing they were written and through the early church all the way through the late 300s, everything falls together and we can know the truth. So I highly recommend, just I mentioned Dr. John's, John's Bergsma, this book is called How the Bible Made Me Catholic, but go to the Coming Home Network or catholic.com and they literally talk on every single aspect and both of those are written from Protestant pastors, like huge theologians, huge biblical scholars that became Catholic. My favorites are Catholic.com on Catholic Answers. People like Tim Staple, Scott Hahn, Jimmy Aiken, all were huge anti-Catholic, and now they're um, huge Catholic theologians. So, and uh, this is not, I'm going to say a list of churches and when they were made and, and what, who made them. And this is not to downplay them because I went to these churches too. But this is, these are just factual statements. And this just is just going to show that every single church follows man-made traditions and they all claim to follow the Bible. And yet none of them agree on a, on a ton of different topics of salvation. So even within our their own denominations, they have differences like uh, Baptist versus Southern Baptist. They actually have differences in their doctrines. And I'm not going to like to knock them. These are just like factual statements. I'm just showing how Scripture alone divides up uh, the body of Christ. So the Lutheran Church began in 1520 by Martin Luther. The Anglican or Episcopalian Church that was started by King Henry VIII in 1534, and I got to tell you the story really quick, but you can just Google it and see the story of how this church came about. But essentially, this church was created when Pope Clement VII didn't get, grant uh, King Henry VIII a divorce with Catherine of Aragon and the right to marry Annabellen. And his Lord Chancellor, Thomas More, who's a saint in the Catholic Church now, was in radical disagreement with the king. So the king started bribing him, and then he resigned as Lord Chancellor, uh, Thomas More did. Then he was arrested and lost all his money, his family, and friends. And then he was beheaded by King Henry VIII, the or his order. He was beheaded, and just before that, St. Thomas More says, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. So literally, the Anglican and Episcopalian uh, churches was started because of a disagreement between King, King Henry VIII and Pope Clement VII over King Henry VIII trying to get a divorce from one woman to try to just marry another woman. And then uh, the Mennonite Church was an ex-Catholic, Menno uh, Simmons or Simons uh, in 1536. The Presbyterian Church was created by John Knox in 1560. 
Congregational Church by Robert Brown in Holland in 1582. The Baptist Church came from John Smith in Amsterdam in 1605. The Quaker Church uh, was founded by George Fox in 1652. The Amish by Jacob Ammon uh, in 1693, which is an offshoot of the Mennonites. The Methodist Church uh, was created by John and Charles Wesley in England in 1744. Uh, Mormonism was founded by Joseph Smith in New York in 1829. The Seventh-day Adventist was uh, created by Ellen White in 1860. Salvation Army by William Booth in England in 1865. Jehovah Witnesses by Charles Tades Russell in 1872. And then the Nazarenes, Pentecostal, United Church, all of a lot of those churches and non-denominational churches are one of tens of thousands, if tens of thousands, founded by men in the last century. So, and who founded the Catholic Church? You can trace it all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. So the, the split up of the church during the time of the Reformation, that was not a, a win for Christianity. That was not a, uh, a freedom of Christianity, of the true Christianity. That was the, a break, and that was a win for the devil to bring the body of Christ into division over key matters of salvation and to pull people away from Jesus in the Eucharist. However, God's love is greater than any uh, split up uh, of, in the body of Christ, and God, his power and his love and his mercy for his people are still working through all all of our brothers and sisters that are outside of the Catholic Church that are following Jesus to the best to their extent that they know possible. And they have real intimate relationships with Jesus. So this just goes to show you that God's love is so powerful and intimate with his people and he will do anything to, to hold on to his people. But if you really start questioning, um, like, where did the Bible even come from? And why is it that we believe what we believe? And our, our own principles, are they self-refuting like sola scriptura? That is a self-refuting argument. So when you go back and look at history, if you go anywhere before the 1500s, you're going to be reading about Catholics. The first church was Catholic. Who you read about in the Bible, those are Catholics. They believe in the Eucharist. Jesus said, go and do this. Go and preach this. Go and do this in remembrance of me. All of these things are pointing to the Catholic faith. Read all the church fathers. They were all extremely Catholic. Everybody believed in the authority of the church. And so just really sit back and think about what is the history of your church? Where did it come from and why did it get there? And why is it that you guys believe what you believe? And that is how I encountered the Catholic faith. I did not like the Catholic Church at all. But a lot of it was because I was not asking these crucial questions. I just thought the Catholic Church taught X, Y, and Z. And I was like, yeah, that's clearly wrong. But X, Y, and Z was wrong in my head. <laughs> like, I had no idea what the Catholic Church even taught. And Fulton Sheen, uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he has this quote that says, There are not 100 people in the, in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. And I was included in that. And I think this is where it starts. Start looking at where Scripture comes from and what Scripture actually says, which we'll talk about in the next, in the next uh, 
um, in the next episode. And also just look around at all the division in the body of Christ and where did that come from? And think about all the different interpretations. Every single church, even so the Protestant uh, communities is split up into 40, 50, 60,000 different communities. And every single one is saying that they're following the Bible. Well, who is actually following the Bible? We really have to ask these questions. So I just encourage everybody to start asking those type of questions and look up any resources that you can on church history, church fathers, and everything that happened throughout the entire church. And you're going to find that the truth fully lies in the Catholic Church. And it is this unbroken succession of sacred tradition that was handed down from Jesus to the apostles. So now let's lastly talk about how to read scripture. So the Bible, as Catholics, uh, we believe that is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Inerrant meaning that it does not contain error. It expresses truth. But just as we have discussed in this entire episode, that as Catholics, we deny that it is the Christian's only rule of faith. And we just talked about a lot of reasons why. So sacred scripture does not stand alone. It was never intended to. So the biblical doctrine is neither perfectly clear nor self-interpreting. Tradition helps draw out and correctly identify uh, scripture's true meaning. And so, as we've been discussing, sacred scripture and sacred tradition, having God as their source, are both inerrant. Therefore, when the correct understanding of a doctrinal matter is at question, both scripture and tradition may be consulted in order to settle the matter. They never can contradict each other. So, uh, Jews and Christians have always known that the parts of the Bible that came directly from God, such as the Ten Commandments that God wrote on the tablets on Mount Sinai, are few and far between. It was human beings, though, who wrote the Bible's original manuscripts. And God worked through those human beings using the human beings' limitations of of their language, their context, their setting, and everything like that. So there are some Christians that uh, teach that God was basically a stenographer recording a courtroom testimony um, and basically wrote down exactly. But just as the church's pontifical biblical commission, it, it says this, it tends to treat the biblical text as if it had been dictated word for word by the Spirit. It fails to recognize that the word of God has been formulated in language and expression conditioned by various periods. However, 1 Corinthians 1, 14-16, Paul says he didn't know whether he baptized anyone else. Here, Paul clearly didn't write down whatever God told him because God would have known who Paul baptized. Paul used his own ideas and own words to write to the Christians, end quote. So God is still the author of scripture, even if the Bible's human authors used their own words and ideas when they wrote the Bible. So just as Christ's human nature did not contradict his divinity, the words of scripture do not contradict God's authorship of it, even though their finite nature limits what God can communicate through those human beings. And there are two senses on, uh, of scripture. So the catechism states that there's a literal sense conveyed by the realities of the words. And then there's a spiritual sense conveyed by the realities and events within those words. So the spiritual, uh, the spiritual sense can be subdivided into three more subcategories, allegorical, moral, and anagogical sense. So the literal sense of scripture recognizes how humans are uh, use language to communicate what they mean, whereas the symbolic sense recognizes how God and all his power, all powerful and all knowing providence can use events in history to communicate what, it, what he means. So the church teaches that the interpreter who's reading it 
as it were, go back wholly in spirit to those remote centuries of the, of the East and with the aid of history, archaeology, ethnology, and other sciences accurately determine what modes of writing, so to speak, the authors of that ancient period would, li- would be likely to use and in fact did use. And so uh, at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about how the, the Bible is a library, and it is so true. So there's, uh, uh, there's a ton of literary genres used in the Bible in the cultural area. So there's poetry, prophecy, narrative, es- es- uh, eschatological sayings, parables, hymns, confessions of faith, etc., each of which has its own way of presenting the truth. Um, in Catechism 114, it talks about interpreting scripture as the analogy of faith or the idea that scripture ought to be read against the whole of divine revelation. So De Verbum says, says it this way, Serious attention must be given to the content and unity of the whole scripture if the meaning of the sacred text is to be correctly worked out. The living tradition of the whole church must be taken into account along with the harmony which exists between elements of, elements of the faith, end quote. So here it's saying that you really need to take the entire Bible into context. You cannot just point to one single verse in Scripture and be like, that's it. We get it right there. Because the Bible has so many dynamics. And so like, and even Bible stories can have more than one meaning. There can be a literal sense, like it actually was a true story, but there also can be a spiritual sense that uh, can be revealing a deep truth. So take, for example, um, uh, the woman at the well is a literal story. So Jesus actually encountered a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were, and Samaritans and Jews, especially a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man were not supposed to communicate, but she encounters, the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus. This was a literal story but also has truths about our relationship with God. So Jesus looks at us just as he looked at, at the woman with with love, although we might be distant and don't know God as that Samaritan woman didn't. And Jesus brings up sin out of his love for her, just as he brings up sin for us out of his love for us to purify us, to weed sin out, to give us a proper relationship with God. And also, after we encounter Jesus, we run to tell everyone about him just as the Samaritan woman did. So there's all these depths of sacred scripture. And so what are some good like tips on how to read uh, the scripture properly or even in times where it seems like there's contradictions within scripture? First, we have to read it in context. So knowing the, the entire context is salvation history. So the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a way to do this is get familiar with typology. So typology is a way to read the Bible where the New Testament is concealed in the Old and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And so it has this beautiful connection between the New and the Old. And this has been interpreted this way in the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. It was written by the authors who wrote it this way and it was interpreted by the church fathers who read it that way, that this, typolo- this typological way. And the church fathers, again, they knew the apostles and the authors of these texts. And because of that, you're going to see the Bible come alive. And it's so much deeper than how a lot of us are reading it. And so, and then also to avoid contradictions in scripture or to draw out the truths in scripture where we feel like there is contradictions. Uh, just remember that deferring descriptions do not equal contradictions. So some of them may have also written in different styles. So like, topical or verse chronological, which can explain alleged discrepancies between them. Um, Remember that incomplete is not inaccurate. 
Um, also consult a reliable commentary. So look at the church fathers or Catholic commentary. Um, and only the original texts are inspired and not their copies. So there could be a translation issue with our Bible, with your Bible. And I'll talk about the best translation in a second too. Uh, Carl Keating, he said this, um, if you think the Bible is supposed to be a listing of theological propositions, you won't make heads or tails of it. If you think it is written in literary form you're most familiar with, you'll go astray in interpreting it. Your only safe bet is to read it with the mind of the church, which affirms the Bible's inerrancy. If you do that, you'll see that it contains no fundamental contradictions because being God's inspired word, it's wholly true and can't be anything else, end quote. So read the scriptures and through the lens of the church that gave us the scriptures and the church fathers interpreted this way we knew the the authors they were all catholic like read it through the lens of the church and the bible is going to come alive uh in the 21st century we struggle a ton knowing the context the setting the meaning of words or sayings in the new testament but as catholics we are so blessed that we can know the context the setting and the meaning of scripture by reading the church fathers who knew the apostles and wrote sermons and commentaries on scripture so uh the best translation of the bible um, which i've looked up a bunch of these um, is probably the revised standard uh version so rsv so um, the, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, Old Testament Hebrew, some Aramaic, and Greek. So um, just an example of a direct translation from Greek would have been, let's, let's do John 3.16. So this interlinear translation, which would be exactly from Greek to English, word for word. It would say this, Thus indeed loved God the world, that the Son, the only begotten, he gave, that everyone believing in him not should perish, but might have life. So yeah, pretty confusing uh, and pretty weird word structure, because our words are not one for one from the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, or anything into English. So we have to really uh, consult a good um, trans- translation of the Bible because it could translate into something very different and actually can get us into trouble that can be pretty wrong. Um, so, and just to personally attest to what scripture has done for me in my life. So Hebrews 4, chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I fully believe that when I feel, uh, any sort of way that just does, I don't feel at peace about something, or I feel just like I have anxiety or anything like that. If I start reading scripture, it like cuts me to the heart. (laughs) Like I feel this instant peace and this instant, Um, calmness and this connection with God because the word of God is living and active and the Bible can still speak to your heart. Like, yes, it was written uh, over thousands of years ago, but it contains so much dynamic truth that you, it just cuts you to the heart. So like when you're reading scripture, pay attention to the movements of your heart, right? So this is use Ignatian contemplation or meditation, like meditate or contemplate a piece of scripture and put yourself in the scene itself, like see Jesus, see, be, place yourself as a person in a, in, in scripture. And a, trust me, it's going to come alive. Um, and also to 
don't allow your experiences to limit the word of God. So measure your experience to the word of God and allow it to determine your experience. So don't read the, the scriptures how you want it to read. Let it lead you and ask for clarification when it seems tough. Uh, this is more than Bible study. We want Bible experience, right? And that thought process right there is what literally transformed my entire thinking of healing ministry and seeing signs and wonders done by the Lord through ordinary Christians. And I'm going to have a separate episode to talk about healing, but literally just read the Gospels and the entire New Testament. Healings are everywhere. Jesus performed miracles and signs and wonders to demonstrate the truth of what he was preaching. He empowered the 12 apostles, the, the bishops, to do so. And then he empowered the 72, which resembled all of us, the disciples of Jesus, the entire body of, of Christ. And then you read Acts of the Apostles. There's healing signs and wonders everywhere. Read church history. Church, the healings have never left the church. That was actually a form of evangelization, and it's still that way today. And for 2,000 years, it's never left the church. And read the lives of the saints. All throughout 2,000 years, there's been signs and wonders to demonstrate the truth of what they were preaching in Jesus' name. Jesus is still working signs and wonders through his church because it attests to the truth of Jesus and his church and what, and what we proclaim as Christians. And if we as Christians say that the Bible is the living word of God and it's active, well then, as we read, uh, especially like when uh, St. Paul is telling us about all the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he tell, tells us to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts after listing them off, and it's, it's the very supernatural gifts like healing and prophecy and all these things. And if you believe in cessationism, which uh, are like our Baptist brothers and sisters say that there's supernatural gifts that were given only to the apostles to start the church, and then basically the, the supernatural gifts died out after that, one that has never been taught in the Catholic Church for 2,000 years, and that just hasn't been true for 2,000 years has been signs and wonders. And I would argue, if you say that, then the Bible itself no longer is alive and effective, but the Bible says it is, and we believe as Christians that it is. So therefore, I'm going to do as it says, and I'm going to match my experience up to what the Bible says. And I want to, I want for the Bible to determine my experience. I believe it's alive and effective. I've experienced it myself, and I'm going to go after whatever the Bible says. And then, uh, and also just to attest to how Catholics like venerate the Bible, a lot of people say we don't know our Bibles, and I'm sure there are a lot of Catholics don't don't read their Bibles enough. But in my uh, pro- in my Protestant tradition that I was at too, there was also a lot of people that didn't know the Bible. <laughs> but nobody, I've never seen anybody venerate the Bible like Catholics do. Come to a single Mass. It is the most Bible-filled hour that you could ever come to. The entire Mass is straight out of the Bible. <laughs> the entire Mass. And in the, middle, in the Middle Ages, there were hand-copied Bibles that were sometimes chained up inside churches. But this wasn't to uh, hide it from people. It was actually to ensure access to them, not to deny them. Such bur- The books during that time were extremely rare and valuable. And it was something that the average Christians did not have, and a ton of them were actually illiterate anyways. Um, so people couldn't buy them and couldn't, couldn't keep them in their home like we can today. So the only way to give people access to them while at the same time preserving them from theft or damage was to actually secure them in the church so people can gather to come to church and read the Bible even outside the context of the Mass. And also, just a, a test of the beauty of the Catholic churches, 
people that weren't literate. That's why so many of the stained glass windows would have the entire story of the Bible. When I was in uh, Paris this past summer, uh, I was in um, a church where every single stained glass window was a certain part of the Bible, and it literally had every single thing on there in picture forms because people were illiterate. So they provided ways for people to know the Bible. And so from so far from downplaying the importance of Scripture, the church's vigilant concern for the integrity of God's written word demonstrates the great value it, is, it has historically placed on it, and I can attest to that personally. So I'm... I'm wrapping this up, this episode. In next episode, we're going to be actually walking through the entire New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and see what the Bible says about Sola Scriptura and church and tradition and what the church actually teaches about tradition. We're going to talk about that too. They distinguish, they distinguish between sacred tradition, big T tradition, and small T tradition, man-made traditions, which Scripture alone, and we're going to talk about how Scripture alone is ultimately non-scriptural and self-refuting, and it really comes comes all down to authority. And and even as I was like putting notes for this episode together and for the next episode together, it was extremely difficult to separate talking about the church from scripture or separating scripture from the church because the scriptures attest to the church and both contain God's revelation. They literally are connected to each other. They are inseparable. Pope Benedict the 16th, I think he's going to be a church doctor someday. This guy is incredible. But Pope Benedict XVI says, The Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is the religion of the word of God, not of a written and mute word, but of the incarnate and living word. Consequently, the scripture is to be proclaimed, heard, read, received, and experienced as the word of God in the stream of the apostolic tradition from which it is inseparable. And so I'm going to end this episode with that quote, but I just pray that this was a fruitful episode for everybody. And let me know if you guys have any questions. Shoot me an email or anything. And um, any questions, topics of requests, or, or anything that you guys want to talk about, let me know. And I'm praying for you all. God bless.